tuned for Dialogos Radio, the weekly radio program featuring the best in Greek music and culture, plus interviews with Greek and international newsmakers. Dialogos Radio with Michael Nevaradakis begins now. A very big welcome to our listeners for another edition of Dialogos Radio the program which bridges the global Greek community and which is heard worldwide on over 20 radio stations and online via streaming and our podcast. I am Dr. Michael Nevradagis, and back with us once again this week is our regular guest and contributor, author, researcher, and ex-university lecturer, Evans Agelisopoulos, joining us as usual from London in our first show post-Brexit, or at least post-Brexit phase one. And Evans, I think that, you know, we talked about Brexit last time, but the issue that has really emerged onto the forefront concerning Greece for yet another time recently is the issue of migration, what has been taking place in Greece recently, and in particular in the islands of the eastern Aegean close to Turkey. And of course, the response or the non-response of the Greek government and other relevant authorities regarding this issue. So to get our discussion started, very generally, what is your first reading, your first take on what is currently taking place in Greece and in the Aegean regarding the matter of migration? I'll say hello to all your listeners and welcoming me back to the show. Uh, Now, obviously, you know, the Turkish issue is a very big one and it's got a long history and it's quite complicated and we obviously have a specific relationship with the country. In the last 30 years, Turkey's obviously been uh, next door to the US wars of intervention within the Arabian world and obviously Turkey has sought to profit in one way or another from these wars. I mean throughout the 1990s decade when Iraq Uh, had sanctions on it. Turkey was the country that was getting illicit oil from them and reselling it without tax. Then, obviously, these wars expanded to engulf countries like Syria, and the needs of Turkey were forcibly changed by the Americans. And because the Americans wanted, you know, a, a blockade on Iraqi oil exports, they started to attack what Turkey was involved in targeting, I think, one of Erdogan's sons. Now, Turkey as well has spent the last 20 years trying to get into the European Union. And Erdogan, I think, was chosen by the Bush family at the time to be the pro-EU candidate. And he spent, you know, the first 10 years of his political existence promoting the EU and that the EU will be uh, the saviour of Turkey and that Turkey will have developed to such an extent that it will have joined, you know, the big European family. Uh, if we go back about a hundred years ago, Turkey, uh, or modern Turkey, when it was created by Kemal, ethnically cleansed, you know, whole, whole regions, the Armenians, the Pontian Greeks, and wiped out quite a lot of people. They also threw out all the Greeks from Smyrna in 1922, And they signed, ended up signing this infamous Lausanne Treaty, which was a population swap 
between the Greeks and the Turks, with the only difference being the Greeks that remained in Turkey were then expelled in the 50s, whereas the Turkish descendants are still in Thrace, uh, which is the area that borders on to Turkey. And recent announcements in the Russian media have appeared in the last couple of days that Turkey wants to take over eastern Thrace and expand its influence in the Balkans. And then we had the mayor of Rodobi, who's Turkish origin character, who said he wants a union with Turkey. And the Greek state obviously does nothing to arrest the clown because he's, act he's actually publicly asking for a change of borders. And that is what is key to this whole, this whole issue. Greece is pro-EU more than the EU, and they are still following the old politics of globalism, where the EU would constantly expand until it reaches India. So I believe what the Greek government supports, the Greek opposition, and almost all the parties that are in parliament, is for Turkey to de facto become co-director or co-owner of the Aegean Basin. And the Greek government has been shipping over with Turkey tens of thousands of migrants into the Aegean Islands and de facto creating a scenario where Greeks become a minority in these areas. And then they can present a situation if we don't agree with Turkey to divide up the Aegean, they're going to invade us, take us over, and we're going to become a province once more of the Neo-Ottomans. You raised a lot of important points there, Evans. Uh, lots of things to respond to. Regarding Erdogan, what is interesting to mention, first of all, he had been the mayor of Kostandinupoli, of Istanbul, in the 1990s, it seems that would, that was his step into politics. He was invited to the George W. Bush White House in late 2002. This was just before the Iraq invasion. Uh, and this was before, I believe, Erdogan was actually elected in Turkey. So it was clear that the Bush-Cheney administration at the time was grooming Erdogan to become Turkey's new ruler, and as you mentioned, Turkey's ruler that would bring the country in line and into the European Union. And a very small aside over here, I'll share a short story from just around that same period. And I think the timing of this is not a coincidence. When I was an undergraduate student studying political science in 2004, I was in a course titled Politics in the EU. And for some reason, we had a class where we held a debate in class on whether Turkey should be allowed to join the European Union or not. Now, it wasn't much of a debate because out of, let's say, maybe 20 or 25 students in a class, the only one that seemed to be against Turkey's EU membership was me. <laughs> because everyone there had been fed the line that was provided by the mainstream U.S. media, by outlets such as NPR and so forth, that, oh, the only reason Turkey's not being allowed into the European Union is because they're a Muslim country. So it was turned immediately into a race and religious issue. No one talked about 
Cyprus, their genocidal past, their violations, which were going on already back then, of Greek air and maritime space, their treatment of the Kurds and the ongoing military activities against the Kurds. None of that registered, and I was the only one that brought that material up in class. Now, what was interesting is the professor was Israeli, the teaching assistant was Greek, and they were the only other people in that room that seemed to side with me. All the students were repeating the mainstream media line. But this was an issue that came up in 2004, uh, soon after Erdogan came to power. His family has an interesting history. His son has been involved, from what I understand, in various criminal activities in other countries as well. I don't even think he lives in Turkey. I think he lives in Italy or some such place. But aside from that little uh, tangent over there, you raised a couple of other points that I want to get to. First of all, the issue of Thrace. Our listeners may not know that Turkey actually has a consulate in this region. I believe it is in the city of Komotini, which is in the region of Rodopi that you mentioned, Evans. There's several Turkish mayors there in various cities and towns. There's many towns in that region that are majority Turkish and Turkish-speaking. There are also some other nationalities living there that in many cases are associated with the Turks, even if they themselves claim they are not Turkish. One that comes to mind are the Pomaks. And the Greek state really turns a blind eye to pretty much everything that Turkey is officially or unofficially doing in this region. Uh, there are even Turkish language radio stations operating here, even though, in theory, Greek law prohibits private radio stations from broadcasting in languages other than Greek, but that does not seem to apply in this particular region. Now, for years, the line that we were hearing from the globalists in Greece, particularly from what I like to call and what I know you like to call the fake left, is that the Aegean doesn't belong to Greece, the Aegean belongs to its fish. <laughs> now we're kind of getting a shift in that line where, as, as you mentioned, Evans, now the line that we're getting is that de facto the Aegean really belongs to Turkey. And that's a line that we're hearing increasingly from many vested interests, many think tanks, journalists who are talking about the, the word in Greek is scenic metalipsy, the co-exploitation, or as he called it, the co-ownership of the Aegean. Now, here, something that comes up, and I'll turn it over to you on this, Evans, is that the current government in Greece, the Nea Demokratia government, has been talking about taking all of the differences that Greece has with Turkey, supposedly, to the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And there's a lot of opposition to this in Greece from those that are in what one might classify as patriotic circles. I would think even within the ranks of Nea Demokratia's New Democracy's voters, there's a lot of opposition to this because then the danger is that The Hague will not rule in favor of Greek interests and in favor of what has been laid down in the Treaty of Lausanne, and that this will end up being a move that will be beneficial to Turkey's efforts to gain that co-ownership in the Aegean. So how do you see this issue, Evans? Well, the, the irony 
of that situation is that normally one would go to the Hague if they have been wronged by someone and they have to be demanding something. Here we have a reversal of roles. We are going to the Hague because Turkey is demanding land from us, which is totally absurd. Uh, one doesn't go to the Hague. Turkey would be the country, allegedly, who would go to the Hague and say, listen, lads, all these areas are ours and we're taking you to an international court because you've taken them from us. We've turned it on its head and we are like in a Turkish harem there to please the Sultan. And then there were also the statements related to that made by the former Syriza minister Kurumblis, who was attempting to excuse the very large inflow of migrants into Greece by saying that the Greek migrants that fled Asia Minor in 1922 during that population exchange entered Greece illegally, therefore so should today's migrants. Kurumbli, the other clown from Eliamep, he also said we can lose Gastelorizo and we, we take back Crete. But apparently Gastelorizo is in that oil basin. That's where all the oil is. That's why it's quite crucial. If he goes to The Hague and takes Castellorizo, we lose the oil. So it's a total and absolute joke because we are noticing two different situations within the EU and the post-EU space. This week, a news report appeared uh, regarding the island of Guernsey, which is just off the coast of England, but closer to France. And this island basically sent out messages to French trawlers to say, you know, you can't ship in our seas anymore. You're going to need licenses and the whole sort of uh, bust up appeared. What we're doing is we are wanting to go to the Hague, not to dispute the areas that Turkey is wanting or demanding, but basically to agree with them so we can have co-management. And it's ironic that there is an institute known as Eliamep in Greek, the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy. And it's basically a cabal of Brussels, NGOs, Soros-funded characters who basically try and dictate foreign policy for Greece. And uh, what is that foreign policy is to basically get rid of any disputes with Turkey over anything and everything and try and integrate the Greek capitalist state with the Turkish one so we can have borderless and frictionless trade. The only problem with that is, is that Turkey has around, what, 80 million people. They still have a national currency, as do all the countries that border Greece, Albania, Bulgaria, Skopje. They've all got their own currencies. So does Turkey. And then if Turkey was to join, you know, the EU fully or there would be no borders, Greece is already in a bad state. It would just totally disintegrate, primarily because nothing would ever be produced in Greece. And it appears that is their agenda to bankrupt every productive activity in Greece in order then to make it a de facto certainty that whatever's left of us is integrated with our neighbours. And I'll, I'll, I'll give two or three examples on what I'm saying, because they, they, they don't really get any mainstream 
media on this. The great government is currently on a plan to shut down all the lignite processing mines. That is a form of coal that we still use to have 40% electricity production. They want to shut it all down. So we are then dependent on Turkish coal exports or the Bulgarian nuclear plant to the north of us to provide us with electricity. That's one area where this government is on a path to get rid of our independence even more. Then we notice on the Greek islands, they have currently, they claim in the North Aegean, 50,000 migrants in Chios, Mytilene or Lesbos, as most people know it, and Samos. They now want to double and possibly treble this population. And because these people haven't got anything to do all day, and, you know, they just roam the streets, and if they're not mugging people or robbing, they try a few rapes here and there. I mean, there's been instances where they tried to grab some small Greek girls near a car park, and luckily there were enough Greeks. Greeks are able to take them back. And they've been burning down trees to basically create fires. And the trees on certain of these islands are quite historic. In, in Chios, it grows uh, the plant which makes vanilla. I forgot what it's called. Ah, uh, Mastika. Mastika, yeah. And in, on the other islands, they have olive trees and wine production. So if they're cutting down these trees for fire, possibility of the fire spreading, so then that will wipe out, you know, the indigenous production, which, again, fits in neatly with the EU, which wants to cut down a lot of indigenous production throughout the EU region and just import from, you know, lower cost regions because the EU only follows what the supermarkets tell them. They don't want indigenous production, they just want imports. And the third area of these changes they're trying to implement to make us a de facto neo-Ottoman protectorate again is the cultural bombardment throughout the mass media. You know, we have to respect uh, the rights and traditions and culture who many of them are involved in, in practices which, you know, have been wiped out in Greece for the last three or four hundred years. Marrying, what is it, your, your first cousin, handing over land for your daughters or getting rid of your daughters, uh, involved in, you know, the other practices they do for the young girls uh, with their sexual organs. You know, there's a whole array of cultural and historical uh, events and what does the government say and, and next to it the educational institutions we obviously have to respect diversity as they say and we have to culturally uh, mix in a scenario where these characters a don't work they spend all their time on the internet all day so you know a lot of them are young males there's no controls in what they're seeing and what goes into their brain and fourthly, they have absolutely nothing to do. And in the next segment, we need to talk a bit about, you know, these migrant hotspot camps, how they claim they're going to set them up and how they claim they're going to fund them and what are all these people going to be doing in them. 
Right, and we will talk about that coming right up in our next segment, Evans. Just a couple of quick comments. Samos, in particular, it's an island that I've been to. It's an island that has been famous since ancient times for a very unique variety of sweet wine that is still produced today. It's one of the most ancient wines in the world. More recently, in the past two decades, it has had at least two major fires that have burnt a lot of the uh, old forest on the island. Chios also recently, uh, about six years ago, six or seven years ago, had major fires that burnt a lot of the Mastica trees. And just as the Mastica production has begun to rebound on the island, we're getting these recent incidents taking place. And then you mentioned supermarket sevens. You go to a Greek supermarket nowadays. It used to be that Greece pretty much was self-sufficient in food production and agricultural production and at all levels, fruits, vegetables, meat, milk dairy products, etc. Now you go. We're talking about a country that is sunny most of the year, that has a Mediterranean climate. And you can't find, for instance, a Greek lemon anywhere. They're imported from Turkey. They're imported from Chile, let's say, or Argentina or Spain. Spain gets to produce lemons for whatever reason, but Greece doesn't. You can't find a Greek lemon, however. I I often find Turkish lemons. I find Turkish onions. And then I also find a lot of non-food products increasingly in Greece are coming from Turkey. A lot of construction products, a lot of lumber, a lot of plastic products, plastic chairs, for instance, and even those juice dispensing machines that you often see in restaurants. Those, increasingly, I see, are from Turkey as well. So you have a country where the media tells us here in Greece that they're about to start a war with us any minute and they're going to crush us and they're at war with Syria and they're helping Libya out and they're battling the so-called rebel army or liberation army in Libya. We hear that and yet at the same time, what we're seeing is this increased trade with a country that is supposedly going to be crushing us any minute. And this increasing dependence on products, rather than closing the borders, rather than banning imports, we seem to be getting more imports. Now, what we're also getting from Turkey, and this will turn us over to the hotspot issue, is migrants that are coming in and have been coming in in very large numbers since 2015. Our listeners should know that this has actually been going on even long before that, going back at least to the days of the launch of the uh, military activities by the U.S. in Afghanistan and Iraq already by the early to mid-2000s. Greece was getting a lot of Iraqis, a lot of Afghanis. But since around 2015, there has been an unprecedented for modern times, wave of migrants that have been coming into Greece through Turkey, mostly entering either through the Aegean islands, those islands you mentioned, Evans, like Lesvos, Hios, and Samos, and some others, and also some that have been entering through the mainland border region, which is the region of Thrace that we mentioned earlier. So hotspots, what others call so-called detention centers, have been constructed 
in various locations in Lee's region, such as in Lesvos, for instance, where one of the more famous ones is, Moria. Another one is in Samos, just above the capital city of the island of Samos. These hotspots, there's just so many migrants coming in that there's way more people inside those hotspots than they can handle and that their original capacity was planned for. Locals have been reacting to the fact that there's been all sorts of criminal activity taking place that did not exist on these islands before. These islands have a very small population in the winter. They're largely reliant on tourism. Their population goes up in the summer months. So so in the winter, there's not many people there, and the people that are there are majority older people. They can't defend themselves if they're attacked on the street. And it just created a very toxic situation for pretty much everyone involved, except for the NGOs, for the human traffickers, for those that are profiting, which also includes some local businesses, those that are profiting quite handsomely from this entire situation. So Evans... Could you explain further for our listeners what the hotspot situation is and what the government in Greece is currently proposing regarding these new so-called closed hotspots? Yeah, well, it wasn't long ago when uh, Mitsotakis made a statement saying that we used to be a small province of the Ottomans and now we've become developed and one wonders what these people are up to because within a year and a half we're going to be allegedly celebrating the 200 year anniversary of the Greek revolution when we liberated ourselves from the Ottoman Empire and I think the aim of the Greek ruling classes to basically have Erdogan giving the main celebratory speech with the politics they are currently implementing. I mean, some of the listeners probably don't also know that the lady organising the celebration, a ship owner's wife called Angelo Bulu, the lady that was in charge of the Olympics that occurred in Greece in 2004, sold a drill ship to the Turks. And this is the same drill ship that has been going into Cypriot territorial waters and was recently heading towards the coast of Crete. And because the Greek government has already sold off most of the drilling areas to foreign multinationals, I think uh, French naval ships arrived to basically push them off. Now, going back to these what they call hotspots, it's true, yes, in 2015, Merkel opened the borders, and I think her aim was to forestall a collapse of the EU by actually trying to expand it even further and quicker. And uh, the plan was so absurd that I think they expected to receive maybe two to three hundred million people within the space of a year, and it's physically impossible to process that many people or to ship them across through certain routes. So far, according to the islanders, more than a million people have passed through them islands. And because we are now in a situation where certain countries in the Balkans and Central Europe, like Hungary, have said they ain't having any, uh, neither is Poland, it's difficult to ship all the people through Greece. 
So what's happened is quite a few have ended up being stuck there for longer and longer periods of time. I mean, uh, there's a small island I was reading the other day called Leros. I think there's three and a half thousand migrants there and the camp is only for 800. And I think that there are more in Leros than the actual islanders. And it reached a stage where uh, they handed over the police station for the migrants to sleep in. Uh, Moria, everyone knows, which is in Midilini, which is basically the biggest island, and it's an indigenous island with its own production, and it's got its own electricity generating station. And recently there was a fire right next to it, threatening to like blow it up and then turning the whole island into darkness because the migrants are just, you know, cooking pots, fires everywhere, there's rubbish everywhere. The actual physical structures of these islands cannot cope with the volume of people they've shipped in. And Moria, the capacity is allegedly 3,000, but there's about 30,000 there. And the recent plans, from what I've read, the government passed a law, and it's funny, RT ran a news story yesterday interviewing a couple of main political characters there. One, I think, was the regional governor, Muzuris, who's like famous now because he's leading protests on the islands. He was in Athens yesterday leading a protest. And the man is, you know, the total and abject clown. His, his main line is, we've got to get rid of the migrants uh, from the islands. And where are they going to go? Oh, just send them all to Greece, the mainland. And then we can fill up the place again. And he is allegedly going against the government by asking for please return the quality of life on the island to how it was. When in reality, what he's doing is he's creating a movement of pressure to basically just ship all these people into Greece proper and send them to all the cities of Greece, not just to Athens, but in every council area and the government has announced a whole heap of money to all the town councils to process these migrants because what most people don't understand is for the migrants to arrive the planning departments basically directs the fire brigade directs the water company and the electricity company so even as an individual if i need to get a new electricity supply for a flat I have to get the paperwork of what I own from the land registry, then take it to the council who have to stamp it to say this is valid. And then I take it to the electricity company to get a number to process a job. Now, they announced that they are sequestrating, no questions asked, you know, and this is peacetime. We're not in a war. Land around 1,100 hectares of land on the islands to build another set of camps, which basically means if you're an owner, your land is taken away from you. And suddenly you have a migrant town popping up and you've got no fallback on it. You can't question it. Protesters in Chios yesterday got their farming trucks and blockaded one of the roads there and protested and they were interviewed on state TV. And uh, the government then announced, and, and this is the joke, oh, we will take your land, but we'll pay you a rent. We're not just taking it. We're going to give you a bit of money. Now, 
there's no discussion on what the amount of money is. This wasn't announced when the government passed the diktat by law. And basically, it's let us take it and down the line we'll see what happens next. And this is the issue. All these mayors in all these areas have become new democracy because of the elections when they stood on a platform of closing down the camps and no more migrants into the areas. And they have now had a little mini general strike. They've led protests. They then led a protest into Athens yesterday. And they are all allegedly against what is going on. And this is the irony of the situation. Are they really against it? Or are they raising the amount of money they can gain from the situation? Because the delivery is what counts. So what they might be bargaining is, look, we've held five or six demonstrations. We've tired the people out. We believe you've offered us a amount of money. But in reality, you should offer us a B amount of money, even more, because we've kept everything calm and we've controlled the people. And this is where the situation is going to get clever because there was another local councillor who reminded everyone that when Syriza went to impose the first set of migrant camps, they also flew in riot police from Athens to crack everyone's head open. And about a week ago, they showed this happening when they had one of these fake migrant riots which was engineered by the NGOs and what they do is they go into the migrant camp and they say to the people we need to have a demonstration you need to come and riot because it will get into the international press and the situation will then be known that you can't live in them conditions and there was that funny girl on one of the islands one of the videos popped up where she was screaming you know Moria camp is dirty it's not fit for humans, only animals can live there. And everyone highlighted her nails were painted and she looked perfectly all right. And it brings us back to the previous comedy when a group of African migrants were sent to a done-up monastery somewhere in Greece and they were moaning, take us back to Moria. So what are we to believe? That everything, all the conditions are inhuman. They basically need four-star accommodation or they need Greek people's homes. And this is where the other sinister part is coming. Georgiadis, who was the clown of a minister who's changed more parties than I've had hot dinners. He was previously the Minister of Health under Samaras when he shut down all the hospitals and people couldn't have cancer treatment. He's now become the Minister of Investment, a big title, and he was again on the internet priding himself that he was the one who sold the ports of Mytilene to the Turks. He now appeared saying, we will take your homes, i.e. all those who owe debts for their only house, if they only own one house, it's known in Greece as the first home policy, which up until now has been blocked from repossessions. We will take your first home if you don't pay what you owe. And basically... They will hand it over to migrants, NGOs, who get funds to house migrants. And there was a report from Thessaloniki from an estate agent who said we can no longer find property to rent because NGOs come in, 
and they ask, how much are you renting this place for? And if it's 500 euros, they say, we offer you 700. Give it to us for a year. And then they stick in, you know, five or six people and they get money for that. So basically, we've got a twin track policy against the Greek nation. Flood the islands so we become a full-blown minority. Repossess first homes from the Greeks and basically get rid of indigenous energy production. So the phrase now is, new democracy is Syriza in blue. They are continuing where Syriza left off, even sort of, you know, fast-tracking it. Or another alternative of that phrase, Evans, a series uh, with neckties. <laughs> That's yeah, another one that you hear a lot here in Greece. If they've worked out that half a million Greeks have left, they're going to try and bring in half a million to stay in Greece straight away. No questions asked. Do you get what I mean? Because that, that fills the void of the Greeks that have left. That's why the numbers are like phenomenal. This is the Alagos Radio. I'm Dr. Michael Navradakis. We're with author and ex-university lecturer Evans Agelisopoulos here talking about the migrant issue in Greece. Evans, you mentioned a few things that uh, I will just add a couple of points to before we move on. You refer to what is essentially the primary residence policy in Greece, where up until now, even though the story has been throughout the years of the economic crisis in the country, that there's been all of these foreclosures of homes and properties, primary residences were protected. And it seems that that final layer of protection for what is most people's either main property or only property might be whittled away. So that's one issue that's come to the fore, and it's directly related to what is going on with the migration issue. Recently, also, the government uh, announced, the Greek government announced, it actually is offering, from what I understand, a reward of some kind to anyone that can report to the state unclaimed wills and inheritances, which of course presumably includes unclaimed properties. So the timing of this announcement just about a week ago or a little less, I should mention we're recording this program on February the 14th, Friday. So just a few days prior to today, this announcement comes from the government about a request for any knowledge of unclaimed wills and inheritances so that presumably the state can then take over these properties as well. And then getting to the issue of sequestration or what they call in the United States, for instance, eminent domain, requisition, taking over by force, basically, people's properties. We're seeing that being raised as a very strong possibility by the current Greek government. And what we're also seeing at the same time is the reassignment of public lands, publicly owned lands, also to be used for the construction of these so-called closed migrant centers that are set to be built not just in the islands, but also in mainland Greece as well. Now, there was a bit of a cutout before, but I think an interesting point that should be shared over here that relates to what you were saying about the local councils, Evan, is this. Supposedly, these mayors and these local politicians in these islands like Lesvos and Samos and Chios are leading the protests against the continued 
situation with the migrants coming in. And yet, as you've pointed out off-air, Evans, it is these local authorities that are responsible for connecting these migrant centers, old or new, with sewage and water connections because the water utilities and the sewage utilities in Greece are run by the municipalities, not by the central state. So they're leading these protests against the existence of these camps, supposedly, and yet they are the ones that are providing those camps with water and sewage utilities that are enabling these camps to operate. So a bit of hypocrisy there. Now, there are already also some centers on the mainland. There's one outside of Athens. And I should mention here as a quick aside, I won't say names, but there is a website. And and it's a website that unfortunately I was affiliated with for a brief period that When they report on Greece, because their two head editors, let's say, are uh, are Greek or are of Greek descent, they take on this patriotic line as well, very much like the uh, the politicians in the North Aegean. It should be mentioned that one of them, aside from coming from a political family in Greece, has a relative who works at one of these camps. So you see this, (laughs) this double, this, this double play taking place all across the spectrum with people coming out, supposedly, you know, putting forth a, you can put this word in quotations, patriotic line on the issue of migration. And yet in some way they're involved with this issue as well. Now, You made an interesting point a few moments ago, Evans, about countries like Hungary, Poland, and some others that have closed their borders and are not letting any migrants through. And it should be mentioned here to clarify this for our listeners that one of the primary routes that migrants would take from Greece to enter the rest of mainland Europe would be through the Balkans. So they would go up through Skopje, through Serbia. They would eventually try to make their way into Germany by crossing through countries like Hungary. Now that Hungary has closed its borders and put up barriers and has ships going up and down the areas of the country where the border is on a river, it has become much more difficult for this particular crossing to be completed. So there's been a backup of migrants in Serbia, from what I understand, trying to get into Hungary and from Hungary, presumably to go on to other countries. But what is being heard in Greece? And I think this is part of the misinformation campaign as well in a very clever way is that all of Europe has shut down its borders. It's just Greece that has them open. No one else has open borders anymore. And that's anyone that is following this issue knows that is not true. The same thing is happening in Italy with migrants that are crossing the Mediterranean, Malta. I've heard that Malta now, the the population of migrants is at least as big as the indigenous population. We're talking about a very small island nation. Spain, which is very close to the African coast, every day the Spanish Navy, I read stories about the Spanish Navy picking up migrants, and instead of returning them, which is what the rhetoric in Greece is telling us, they're bringing them in to Spain. 
So in reality, we don't have these closed borders uniformly. We do have some countries that have closed borders, but it's not something that the so-called patriotic bloggers and patriotic media in Greece would have us believe is happening in every country except Greece. I do think this points to a more significant issue, however, uh, that concerns the EU itself, because supposedly one of the main tenets of the European Union is free and open movement within the European Union, open borders. We have the Schengen Agreement, which also includes certain countries that are not EU member states. And what we're seeing in practice, and you can comment on this, Evans, is that we're no longer seeing a uniformity of this policy. I've even heard that borders have gone up between Denmark and Sweden, which are connected by a bridge. And now what we're hearing is that in Switzerland, which is not an EU member state, but is a member of the Schengen zone, a referendum will be held this coming May about whether or not Switzerland should remain a member of the Schengen zone. So we might have a form of, uh, I don't know what we would call this, Swiss Swiss exit, whatever. (laughs) And and, and it just shows us that this overall open borders structure of the EU is under threat. Well, basically, under the old policy of globalism, it was clear that the EU was based on the principle it has to constantly expand in order to remain even. And since the Euro crisis, which then ended up becoming Brexit, and then the failed uh, negotiations of the Western Balkans joining the EU, the failed uh, attempt at Turkey joining the EU, a a lot of states have realised that the whole thing is sort of imploding and it's going to become every man for himself. That is why you are seeing an inconsistent policy occurring in relation to the borders and at the same time, Brussels not really intervening to impose hard-headed sanctions on countries like Hungary or chucking them out of the EU because they don't obviously want to set a precedent. That is in relation to the borders. There's just a few more things I think we forgot to add in relation to Erdogan. You you said at the beginning that he's obviously involved in the Syrian conflict. He's also getting involved in the Libyan conflict. A small news report announced that Sarraj, who's the government of the UN in Libya, provided him with a $4 billion uh, loan to offset his collapsing currency. And then another news report appeared that he has fired over 300 pilots and he wants to bring them back. And this is where we get all these violations of Greek airspace or the way they present them. But in reality, it's a way within which the Greek Air Force can train Turkish pilots. That is what they've been doing in the last five or six years. And we also have a poll that appeared in Turkey, which said that 60% of people no longer support Erdogan. And they also had a a conference with the Russians. And you you have this quite ironic situation where Russia is with Assad and they have been bombing Turkish positions. And he's moved 
as many tanks as possible onto the border and he keeps on encroaching uh, Syrian space and getting bombed and shot back. And they also announced today that he's removing all his tanks from the Evros border to send them down into the Syrian space. Now, what is going on, no one 100% can really tell. It's just that Erdogan is always using a twin-track policy for everything to try and generate money. So, you know, he, he threatens to flood the EU with three million migrants every now and again. Then he says he has to have troops on the border and inside Syria. He's going to take over half of Syria in order to stop the terrorists. And he's invading like a terrorist. Then he gives a speech to his own party saying that we're going to recreate a neo-Ottoman empire and our brothers in Libya want us, our brothers in the Ukraine want us because allegedly he considers the Crimeans Turkic-speaking people. And he hands over $200 million to the nutters in Kiev. So the man, I don't think, knows what on earth he's doing. He's trying to please all the foreign powers. He's fighting with the foreign powers. And at the same time, to his domestic audience, he's saying we're going to be successful in Syria, in Libya. And this is the key. His success can only be guaranteed by the Greek government if they give him co-ownership of the Aegean, because the coastal areas that he is after do have deposits of oil. I think it's called the Irovatos Basin. And I think this is what the key to the situation is, that the Greek government is his ace up his sleeve. Absolutely. And what we're seeing in Greece is this same Turkish threat is the bread and butter, not just of the government, but also the so-called patriotic opposition to the government who pretty much every day are bombarding their audience with stories about how Erdogan and Turkey are going to be coming in any minute and that the Turkish threat is imminent. And it may be in this clever, underhanded way that we've been talking about today, but they're making it appear like the Turkish army is minutes away from rolling into Greece. And to show, to highlight the absurdity of this particular rhetoric, we can look no further than a recent incident involving two of Greece's biggest oligarchs, one of whom happens to be from the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, who is often called the Russian in Greece, who is a member of, or was a member, I believe he still is a member of Putin's Foreign Affairs Committee, was a former member of parliament in Russia with Putin's former party, United Russia. I'm talking about Ivan Savidis. There's this whole issue that blew up concerning his ownership of two football teams that are playing in the same division in Greece's football championship and how this is illegal and anti-competitive. And the ruling was that he is, or at least people directly connected to him, own both of these teams. And apparently one person on this professional athletics commission, a supposedly patriotic lawyer, said that yes, he does own both of those teams, but he purchased this second team, Xanthi, which is in that Thrace region that we were talking about earlier, 
that has that large Turkish, what they call minority. We had this individual say that he had to buy this team because otherwise the Turks were going to come in and take over Xanthi. And by Xanthi, she didn't just mean the team of that city, but actually take over the city itself. And, and people sit around in Greece, not everyone, of course, but there's people in Greece that sit around and believe this stuff. And it just plays into the hands of the government because if there is this constant imminent threat that you're going to be crushed militarily from moment to moment, it paralyzes you. And what that paralysis does is it doesn't allow you to actually see the big picture and what is actually happening, which includes, of course, the migrant issue and which includes, of course, what actually is happening between the Greek government and Turkey in a way that they seem to be coordinating different things. So we're about to wrap up here. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Evans, uh, on this issue before we close out? I think basically Turkey is now under severe pressure, both economically and from the fact that Erdogan is a small town village boy who's built himself a 1,000-room palace and, you know, he's dreaming of a neo-Ottoman empire and he will end up, A, collapsing in Syria, getting hammered in Tripoli because Haftar forces are now bombarding Tripoli and the airport, which means Turkey cannot, under any conditions, send any troops there. And any movement into the Aegean without the full agreement of the Greek government, and this is the problem, is going to be impossible. For a start, that is where most of his foreign currency earnings are in terms of tourism and where foreign multinationals have got these oil concessions. So I, I think Turkey now is in a severe impasse and Erdogan's moves aren't really helping the situation because he's falling out now with uh, Putin who became his lifesaver after the failed coup against him and his fallout with the new Trump administration. Right, and what we've been seeing from influential publications related to the foreign policy establishment in the United States, in the UK, and even from Israel is an increasing turn against Erdogan and against the Turkish government. For instance, there was one recent article from an influential publication calling upon all of the U.S. military apparatus that is currently in Turkey, which presumably even includes nuclear weapons, to be transferred out of Turkey and into Greece. So these were not things that one would read anywhere, at least not anywhere from any establishment foreign policy publication of the West five or 10 or 20 years ago. But we are reading these sorts of stories and these sorts of analyses now. So, you know, as he said in our last show, Evans, a week in politics is an eternity. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll see where things stand with Turkey and immigration situation, as this is an issue that promises to be ongoing. So, Evans, thanks once again for joining us this week here in Lialogos. Thanks for having me on.
All right, this has been another week of Dialogos Radio. We were joined this week once again by Evans Agelisopoulos from London. I'm Dr. Michael Nevradakis. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for joining us.